The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Thank you, Ben, for opening us with prayer this morning, and we are going to look into our our study here in Isaiah today. And today's study is going to have to do with um, with, uh, uh, God's future for Israel. And certainly this isn't everything, but it has to do with uh, some of the prophecies out of the book of Isaiah. There are more prophecies in Isaiah uh, with regard to the people of Israel than we're going to cover today. But we're going to look at some of the highlights in this and uh, hopefully help you and I think about this. And I I always think this this is a study when you're looking at prophecies in the Old Testament about the people of Israel, you go, well, this isn't about me. Not about me. And you know what? That's actually a good thing to learn sometimes. It's not all about me. In fact, when we get into our study on the glory of God, that really is going to be a study that's going to remind us it's not all about me. It's really about God. And it's the same thing here. This ultimately, you'd say, it's about Israel. It's actually about God. It's about the fact that God made promises to Israel. And if you and I think that those promises can be put off, tossed in the trash, or allegorized and given to us, we really are dishonoring God. Because to honor God is to recognize that he made those promises. Those promises rest on God's very nature, on the fact that God is truth. And if we try to mess around with those promises and allegorize them so we can apply them to us, now we're changing something about the truth of God. We're saying God's truthful. Uh, For those of you that are Star, Star Wars people, and probably most of you aren't, but in the first the first movie back when I was in seventh grade, and Obi-Wan tells Luke Skywalker that Darth Vader killed Luke's dad. <laughs> and then the next one, he finds out, well, wait a second, he is your dad. And he's going, what? And he goes, well, from a certain point of view. <laughs> That's deception. See, that was deception. If you don't get that reference, don't worry about it. But the point is, I mean, if we take and allegorize God's promises, what we're doing is, well, God's being truthful from a certain point of view. <laughs> no, he's actually going to be truthful in what he, say, what he says in these promises. And this is this, and now, not to make it about us again, but this is something about us. If we recognize that God's truthful to his promises to Israel, that also encourages us that his promises to us will stand behind them rather than twist those up. Well, I told you I was going to do that. And I meant it from a certain point of view. No, no, he really meant it. He's going to do that. So Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, I want you to look. Isaiah chapter 1, we're going to go down to verses, uh, we're going to go down to verse 24, kind of because there's a little bit of a paragraph in this poetry. And if if you have a Bible like mine, the way it's printed and the lines don't all line up in, you know, squares that kind of are jagged. That's because a lot of this is poetry. Okay. And we've talked about that before early on when we introduced Isaiah. But if you look in Isaiah chapter one, verse 24, therefore the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself of my, on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lie. And I will remove all your alloy, and I will restore your judges as at the first, 
and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness and a faithful city. God is talking to the people of Jerusalem. He's obviously not talking to the physical city. I think we all understand that. It'd be like if somebody addressed royal city, he's talking about the citizenry, not the, not the physical property. And, but as he's looking at it, he says, number one, I'm dealing with the enemies. And the second thing is I've got to deal with the problem in, right in the midst. I've got to get rid of the dross. When, when I was growing up as a kid, my dad and a couple of his friends would go over to a firing range uh, um, and uh, a gun range. And they would go out and they would pick up all the, the slugs that were laying out there. And they could pick these up and they'd bring big boxes of these home. And then they take them out because I've never seen fancy metal done this done with like real expensive metals. But they would take that and they would melt that all down. And then they would clean that because that stuff would have crud on the top of it that they would skim off. And then they would actually, some of the guys would re-pour, recast, and they would make um, the new slugs to reload and everything like that. And some of them used it. I remember my dad made a bunch of weights. Um, when I was in high school, guys were wearing weight vests to help them jump better for basketball and such. And they were wearing all the, and they had all these lead weights in there. And so they made lead weights out of a bunch of these for people. But they had to clean off the dross. And I remember watching them do this as a kid going, man, that is, I wouldn't have thought there would have been that much crud. I would have thought that would have been fairly pure. In fact, he, he also calls it in the end of verse 25, alloy. Because you all know what an alloy is. That's where you take at least two metals and you actually are able to make them come, bring them come together. But if you want just pure metal, you've got to go through this process again where the, the two separate. And he says, I'm going to remove the alloy, the mixture of these two. What he's talking about, that imagery of getting rid of the dross, is getting rid of the junk among these people. And there's two ways of understanding this. It might be that some of these people have issues that those things, they need to look at what, has, what they have been doing, and God needs to purify and get rid of that. But the other way to look at it is there are people among them that entice them to, like we were looking in the adult class, hey, come, let us go worship idols. Hey, let us go act like the peoples around us. And he gets rid of those. And we certainly know that from other passages. Ezekiel taught, gives us the image, and I think it's Jeremiah also, but Ezekiel's the one I'm thinking of, where he talks about a shepherd standing at the sheepfold, and as the sheep comes in, Everyone that's not supposed to come into the sheepfold, he drops his rod down and pushes and turns it away. He's getting rid of the dross. He's getting rid of that which isn't supposed to be there. That, by the way, just as because he doesn't tell us here, but when does he clean the dross from Jerusalem? Anybody know? It's called Daniel's 70th week, or we popularly call it the tribulation period. The Great Tribulation is when he does that. And the result of that is, as a result, the people of the city are righteous. It's a righteous city. It's a faithful, it's a dependable city as a result of what God does there. So, um, let's, uh, uh, this is also then, I'm going to move to the next one here. And uh, let's, this, should, this should be chapter 2. It says chapter 1 there, but let's go to chapter 2. Turn with me to chapter 2 here. I'll just follow my outline and not the slides. Verse 1 of chapter 2. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established on top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. 
Now, I think there's actually two things that happen here, to be very honest. When it talks about the mountain of God in this context, that's a mountain of the house of God. He's talking about a metaphor for the center of God's government. He does this many times when he looks at governments as, as being mountains. And probably there was something legitimate to that because not all governments, but a lot of governments that they were familiar with, they did put their main capital, shall we say, on top of hills and mountains. Because it, it gave them the ability of looking around and seeing enemies coming from a distance, number one. Number two, it's easier to defend yourself when you're on top of a hill and your enemies have to come up against you than it is to try to defend yourself if you're just out on a flat plain. And so he says, there, this, is, we're, this government, God's government, will be above all of these other governments. And there will be. There will be other nations as a result of this. Zechariah tells us that. He tells us these other nations are going to have to come to this one. And it tells us that right here at the end of verse 2, all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That is talking about the temple in, in the millennial kingdom, as we refer to it. Then he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his ways. And the law or the Torah will go forth from Zion. Now, we have the word law here because there will be a law, but that word Torah that is translated law is simply a word that meant teaching, which is really what kind of what the law was. It was a form of teaching that gave them commands on how they were to live. But people are going to want to know this. See, in the millennial kingdom, today you don't have people streaming to the church to find out the ways of God. You don't have nations coming to the church. It's never been the case. It wasn't that case in the Old Testament, although God told Israel it could have been that way, but because of choices that Israel made, it never was that way. But in the millennial kingdom, people will realize God is with them. And we want to know God's ways, and we want to know how God wants us to function. And so it says peoples and nations are going to be streaming there to, to Israel, to Jerusalem, to come and learn what God wants. Ben, do you have a comment? It is. And yet, he's saying this is the city of righteousness. That's in the time frame, you think we call it the city of Israel. Right. And I'm just going to say, I think, I think this is testimony to the fact that God can take somebody that has been a, a heel grabber and a serper and actually change their character and accomplish them, which is what we saw back in chapter one. He cleans away that dross. He gets rid of the, the garbage. So he's done that, and he's still. It's just kind of interesting on the word play, right? I, like I said, I I think that that's the significance. Maybe to take away from it is that he still can refer to it as Jacob, even in a good sense. Yeah. Now, because of what God did with these people, uh, as He's dealing with them. Verse 4, and he will judge them between nations and will render decisions for many peoples. I mean, think about that. Wouldn't you love, wouldn't, wouldn't the world love that right now if there was actually somebody that could come down and judge between Russia and Ukraine? And those are just the ones that we see in the, in the news every day. But there are wars going all around the world that, that don't even make the newspaper. Because uh, they're just such small scale, we don't care. We care about those because we have interactions with these two nations. We care about that. But he's going to come down and render decisions on those. And at the end of verse 4, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares. They're going to go from being warriors to farmers. 
and their swords, or the swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. I always, I always like that expression. They won't learn war, and it is. That's exactly what it says. They won't learn war. So, quick survey: How many of you, when you were growing up as a kid, did you ever take a stick and with your buddies, your friends, girls or guys? Ever play war? I did. I mean, it's the thing. It, it, it's actually really common for kids to do that. Even if you don't buy kids toy guns and such. I'm telling you, when we were kids, you come out and you'd find a stick and you're like, that stick looks like a wonderful rifle. <laughs> you know? And pretty soon you're playing with it. In other words, from the time in our culture, and now granted, right around here it's not that case, but there's some way that the way the cultures of the world are, even from a young age, people learn war. It becomes a thing that we become accustomed to, that we're aware of. We may not always like it, but we're accustomed to it. I always have to tell this joke. We had My wife babysat for a, a little boy many, many years ago, and his mother was very, very anti-gun. And one day, just before she walks in the door, he takes, he's sitting on the floor and Emily's got her, Emily, they've got Barbies and he takes a Barbie and bends it over like that and goes, bang, bang. <laughs> She's going, who taught you that? <laughs> who taught you that? Uh, part of it, part of it is our culture. Anyway, even if, even if, even if you try to take all that away, it's the nature, but they're not going to learn that anymore. By the, by the way, for those of you that aren't aware of this, I've never visited it. Uh, I've never been there to see this. But from what I understand, that they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. From what I understand, that that actually sits, I believe, on the wall in the UN. I mean, that when they put that, to, when the UN was assembled, that was part of one of their goals was to try to end war. Well, that you can see that that has not happened in the many years that the UN has existed like that. But they have that. Uh, this, this idea here. But I think that this is, a, this is something for us to look forward to, that in, when the millennial kingdom begins, when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, it's not going to be a kingdom that's dominated by warfare. I mean, think even, even in our, the history of our country, how many wars our country has been involved in. And we know like the big ones, but there's all kinds of smaller wars and police actions and different things where we've sent troops to go support other people. And it's been very common. It's a very common thing for mankind, but it's going to end in his kingdom. And I think that that's a good thing for us to look forward to, to anticipate. Turn with me over to chapter 4. Chapter 4. And I want to read verse 1, because I didn't even include this in this, but uh, at the end, when you go to the end of the last chapter, uh, and the things that are going to, you're going to talk, it's going to talk about how many people are going to die in war. And this is the result of what happens, because there are so many people that die in war. Verse 1, for seven women, this is at the beginning of the millennium, seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread. And we will wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. In other words, there are going to be so many men gone due to death in war that it's going to be like a seven to one, seven to one ratio And uh, at the beginning of it. And whether that literally happens, I don't have any reason not to think that that won't happen. It seems to us very odd 
but for them, they consider it a reproach to not have the title of a man with them, to not be connected with them in that culture. Then that brings us to verse 2. In that day, that is the day that the wars are over and all of this has happened, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. And it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone was recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. And daughters of Zion, is there's two ways that this expression is taken. It's taken of the citizenry of Zion, but it's also taken of the, of the supporting villages and cities that, lie, that lay outside or around the area of Jerusalem. One of those you guys know. It's called Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a city that just wasn't that far out of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would have been the location to which that small village of Bethlehem. And it was a very small, in, in, in the time of Christ, and even at that time, Bethlehem was a small place, but it was especially small at the time of David in the Old Testament. But those daughters of Zion, it says, uh, it says God will then cause that filth to be put away, purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by, and I think that this should be a capital S, most, every translation I know, and no commentaries ever talk about this. <coughs> I went through a whole bunch of commentaries wanting to know why they treat this as a small list. But I think that this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the beginning of the, of the, the or towards the end of the tribulation in the beginning of the millennial kingdom. This is what Joel tells us about, that he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And that spirit is a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. In other words, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he causes these people and all the stuff that they've been doing causes it to be changed by changing the heart of these people. Again, we look at the Old Testament and we were looking at some of these people in the, in the uh adult study downstairs this morning, or our morning class, and talking about how horrible the stuff was that went on around these people, and how much, how often Israel got wrapped up in that horrible activity. And it's real easy to look at them and go, that's disgusting, but the thing is, they don't have something you and I have. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we don't have to act like that, but without the indwelling Holy Spirit, the only motivation they had was the motivation to get blessings from God, material blessings, to be healthy and all that, and to avoid being cursed by God. And remember when he goes through the blessings and the cursings in Deuteronomy 28, the curses take up three times as much space as the blessings. So does the star on the chart or discipline, which one of those is a stronger motivator? I think, it's the, I think it's the stick. The stick is the stronger motivator, which is why God devotes three times as much attention to curses when you, when you don't have the Holy Spirit. You and I now with the Holy Spirit, our motivation should be completely different. It shouldn't be to earn a star or to avoid the stick. It's altogether different. It ought to be that we're being motivated by love. He goes on in verse 5 um, uh, here in this. It says, and the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Jerusalem and over the assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and brightness of flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. And there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. What does that sound like, by the way? What does that remind you of a little bit? 
What? Yeah, Israel's time in the desert when God brought them out. They had a cloud over them by day and, a, and this fire by night. Did you ever stop to think what that was like to have, I would say, probably a good guess of how many people walked out of Egypt, along with all their livestock and their tents and everything? Probably about 1.7 million people is a guess. People that don't take this word as seriously, they, make it, they try to make it a significantly smaller number. But that's a big number. Now, could you imagine what that's like to have all those people out there and you don't have street lights? People don't have flashlights to just turn on and walk through the city streets. And most of those people didn't, you know, you don't have tiki torches outside lit up at night, you know, that people went through and lit lit up so that people could see lights in the cities. And they, by the way, they did do that in ancient cities. They actually had people that went around in ancient cities at night and lit torches so that the streets were lit by night. God does this by just putting basically a giant night light out there over everybody so that they've got light and they can kind of see at night, which provided a number of benefits. But he says, in the kingdom, he says, he is going to create over that over the whole assembly of this cloud by day, even smoke and brightness of a flaming fire by night. But he says it's going to be like a canopy that's over them, and it's going to, in verse 6, be a shelter to you from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. So God's going to be providing this canopy that is sort of like the situation they had in the Old Testament. It's going to be, I think, on a bigger scale, but it's going to be also designed to provide them Physical protection from anything that they might think that would happen in the earth at that moment in time. Now, I don't think that they're going to be facing the kind of things that they were doing in the days of Isaiah, in the days that we live. We had all those winds that blew through here yesterday, and I think Jeff was saying there weren't anything like the winds they were having over at Ritzville yesterday. But it was windy here, and if you went out in that wind, when it was a little chilly, you felt it. Let's see. They're going to be protected, so they, they have this, this provision that God's talking about them. What? No, this is this is when they go into the millennial kingdom that he's doing this. So he's, yes. So he's, and it that we didn't get to that. Yes, but I believe I be, I believe that this is a reference to what he calls, or what in the New Testament calls the New Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down, and just to kind of, and that will it will be like fire because it's going to be lit by the glory of God, which that's you know hint at the our study on glory in the future. But that city, if you remember, across it's on its base, it's 1,500 miles square. Just think of what kind of a canopy that's going to create to protect those people, to give them light as well as to protect. So thank you. Yes, that is, that is what this is when he's talking about this. So with that, Peg having brought that up, we didn't get there yet, but I want to, um, let's go over to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, let's go to verses 23, start with verse 23, Revelation 21, 23, and it says in verse 23, and the city, he's talking about this heavenly Jerusalem that's come down, it never says it comes down and sits on the earth, it just says it comes down, but it's always called the heavenly city, and there's a lot of people today that say, that, well, the heavenly city comes down and sits on the earth, just very quickly, if you go and look at the measurements for the temple in Ezekiel for the millennial kingdom, it's much bigger than the earthly temple was in Solomon's day. And even when it was uh, 
shall we say, given a facelift by Herod. But it is still significantly smaller. It's a big city. It's a big temple area, but it's not 1,500 miles big. It's just much bigger than the one in the Old Testament. This one's going to be huge, and this one would come down. So you got a problem. Either you're going to take both those prophecies seriously, or you're going to have to say, well, this is for a different time and everything like that. And there's never been a time that Ezekiel's temple was ever fulfilled. And I think I've told you this before. When we went through and taught on a little bit of that stuff with Ezekiel's temple some handful of years ago, pulled several commentaries off, off my shelves, and we're looking at this people that, do not, that are not premillennial like us. What do they do with Ezekiel's statements about that temple? And they go, well, this is just a picture of what heaven will be like, or this is just a picture of how great things will be sometime in the future. And you always say, then why does he give you a detailed explanation that the door is this high and it's this wide and it's got a window in here and that window is this? Why would you bother with giving dimensions, literal dimensions for all these little details if, you're just, if it's just an allegory? To me, it's just... It's one of the, the craziest ways of responding and interpreting that. But it goes on here, and he says, here in uh, Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God, it illumines it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory, glory to it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates will never be closed. But the point is, people are going to walk in that light. So we were looking at that idea, how it's a shelter, and it's a light, as a result that there is no, there's no darkness there in this city because of what God is doing. It has to do with this new Jerusalem. So just get this picture. Could you imagine what that's like, living in a place where you have this massive city hanging over you up there in the sky? I don't know where God's going to put it out there, but it's going to be big but it's going to be the thing that's going to provide light to you all the time, as well as shelter. And this is what um, Isaiah is, uh, God is prophesying through Isaiah about this. I'm going to, I'm, I'm actually going to skip over this next one, which you're going to, I hope you don't hang me out to dry for this, but this is the prophecy in Isaiah 7 that God's going to give a son. And that prophecy, just in simple terms, is fulfilled twofold. It's fulfilled first with Ahaz's son because the, he's, he's faced with a problem with um, Aram and Ephraim, uh, wanting to, Ephraim representing the northern ten tribes, Israel, wanting Israel and Aram to come down and attack Judah. And Ahaz is kind of freaked out by this, and God sends a prophecy, and he goes, he says, he says uh, it's not going to happen. In this space of time, Ephraim's going to become nothing. You're not even going to have to worry about them anymore. And he says, he says, as a result, the young woman is going to bear a child. Now, our Bibles say virgin, but it's not. It's the word Alma, which is a, which is a, a young woman. We do have the word Bethula that does refer to a virgin, but that's not the word that he uses here. This ultimately is fulfilled then in the birth of Jesus, as we're told over in the book of Matthew. This is simply, this is a prophecy that has a dual fulfillment. And we have a few prophecies in Scripture that are fulfilled at different times and in different places, okay? And in the New Testament, the word that is used over there is parthenos, which is the word for virgin. It's, there's not another way to take it over there uh, in uh, Matthew. But uh, that's that without going through that in any more detail. I want you to turn now to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, 
we're going to, in the midst of this, we're going to go down and we're going to just put in down at verse 6, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And again, we read this at Christmas time. It says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Eternal Father, or the Father of Ages, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government over his peace. Now, I put up here, he has an unending kingdom. But if you read it, technically it says there's no end to the increase of his government. But how can there be no end to the increase of his government if the government itself ends? Therefore, it's not just saying it's an unending government, but it's an unending government that its increase never ends also. And Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, when he makes his prophecy in Luke, he says of his kingdom there will be no end. And we have other, other texts that also support that, such as in Daniel, he says that there's a, prop, uh, there's a kingdom coming and uh, there will be no end to that kingdom in this, this way. So he says, of his kingdom or the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end uh, of his government or of its peace. So it's not, not going to be a government that is ever going to be in jeopardy. Even at the end of of the millennial kingdom, when those masses of humanity are are, be, are led astray by Jesus, or excuse me, led astray by Satan, by the devil, and he brings them up against the city, nothing actually in reality is threatened. It can look like it's going to be a threat, but they haven't been learning war for a thousand years, so they're not coming up with swords and staves and spears and guns, and they just come up and it's they basically create a big blockade. And they get up there, and as soon as they're masked, what does God do, according to, Isaiah, or according to Revelation 20? Fire comes out of heaven and just consumes them all, and it's done. And Satan's taken, and he's cast in a lake of fire. See, so the end, so as he says here, there is no end to the increase of the government or of its peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So the one that's going to be sitting there is going to be on the throne of David to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time on and again unto the ages or unto the very long time or forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So one of the other prophecies that God is, is encouraging them with, he says, is I'm going to give you a son. He's going to be a king and he's going to have a kingdom and it's going to be a kingdom unlike anything you've ever seen because it's never going to end and it's always going to, it's always going to know, know peace and it's going to always know increase as opposed to, is inflation increase? <laughs> but I was thinking depressions and things like that, like that, you know, decreases. There's never going to be anything like inflation. It's, I was... That was a joke. I'm sorry, um, but his increase is always going to be is always going to be positive in that way. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And when you get to Isaiah chapter 11, I want you to look at the last verses of chapter 10. I want you to look at verse 33 because if you don't read this in context, remember we don't have chapter divisions. Chapter divisions and verses are all been added. But if you look at those last verses, it says, Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop, lop off the, the boughs with a terrible crash. What does he mean when he says the boughs? You know, a bow? Big limbs off of trees, right? Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased, and he will cut down the thickets of the forest. Places where the forest is all overgrown and it's really thick. He's going to cut all that down with an iron axe. And Lebanon will fall by the mighty ones. So he's looking at 
all these people that have been opposed to Jerusalem and Israel, and he looks at them as tall, impressive trees, big things like this, strong boughs, and even thickets. And he looks at God coming in with an ax and just leveling all that. That's all the background for verse 1 that of chapter 11 says, and then a shoot. What is that shoot? It's talking about a branch shooting out from the stump of a tree. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. In other words, God gets rid of all those nations and people pictured as, as trees. And he's going to send out a new shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. You see the image? If you don't, if you don't read the last at the last chapter, you miss the significance of this. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel. And I think that these, some people can take these as small S's. I still think that these can be a capital S because it can be talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that anointed Christ and caused him in his human nature to have these qualities and will cause these to be true. And you say, why does he need this? Because this is God's plan. It's that one person of the Godhead works in tandem with another. And even the God, the Son, in his human nature, depends on the will of the Father and the ministry of the Spirit. And so he says, it's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decision by what his ears hear. How many of you have ever found yourself in a situation where you've had to make a decision about somebody, somebody you're working with, somebody that's under you, maybe even somebody that's over you, and you're listening to what they're saying, and you're watching, and you're going, I don't know. <laughs> Something's off, but I don't know. Is it this person or is it this situation? I don't know. Thankfully, this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to come, and he, his judgment isn't going to have to be based on just listening to his ears and hearing testimony, watching things with his eyes. It says, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and he decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So as he reigns, again, notice in there we have that idea of righteousness, and then that term for judgment back up there in verse 3 that he judges and makes those decisions with fairness. This is the nature of what he's doing. He's doing things the right way that never has been seen before. Because it's always dependent on men and what men can or cannot do. And then not only do, do we have that, but we have creation change in verse 6. And again, I think we should take this literally. It says, and the wolf will lie down or will dwell with the lamb. I don't know if you guys saw this. I just saw this in the news this morning. I've Schweitzer is over by Sandpoint. Does that sound right? Okay, that's what they were saying because they said it was over by Sandpoint. They've had problems with coyotes over there all January. They've had coyotes that have been coming on the ski slopes and have been chasing skiers on the ski slopes. They even had one lady that had to knock off her skis and scramble up a tree and she got bit by a coyote and another skier came up, saw her in the tree, but the coyote trying to get her and take her ski poles and had to beat the coyote off. They, and they have no idea. They, I think they've caught one coyote. And they, they said even in town, in, during the middle of the day in the streets of Sandpoint, they've had coyotes showing up in the middle of the day, walking through the streets. They don't know what's happening. Now, th those, those coyotes aren't walking out there going, hey, I want to be your friend. That's why the coyote bit that lady, right? All this to say is, uh, one of my friends used to say, if you made a wolf lie down in a sheepfold, you'd end up having a wolf 
in sheep's clothing <laughs> because it would end up eating the sheep and be covered with sheep all over it. It says, no, the wolf will lie down with the, the, the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid, you know, a kid being, being a, a goat or a, or a, uh, yeah, a, a goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling will all be together and a little boy will lead them. The cow and the bear will, will, will graze. I, I say that one is interesting because I remember uh, Ben's dad talking about Ben's brother, a, a taxidermist, actually happened to deal with a farmer over there in that, uh, that what do you call that, Idaho Valley that goes up there, with a farmer that had had a bear. It turned out to be a grizzly. They didn't think they had grizzlies there, but a grizzly that actually came out and killed a cow and then would come back in the evenings to feed on this thing. So I, when I think of the cow and the bear, I'm like, oh, I've got this story that I remember Don telling me about uh, Nick's experience with, with, this, uh, with this bear. Anyway, the cow and the bear will graze, and their young, young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Well, think about it. How many of you have dogs? How many of you feed your dogs? You go out and slay meat and give them fresh meat all the time. I mean, usually if you go and buy dog food in the stores, that dog food... The bulk of it is grain, isn't it? It's most of it's grain mixed with some animal byproducts and such. But so I, I this doesn't surprise me. I'm sure the dogs probably would opt for a steak if they had that instead of the dog food that, that that we tend to give them. But the whole point of all this is the animal kingdom is going to be changed. The whole the physical world changes, but the animal kingdom changes also, doesn't it? The animal kingdom changes out there in the millennial kingdom. Because it says, verse 8, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, a weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Verse 10, and then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. This is kind of what we saw in chapter 1, that they're going to come to Jerusalem to get the law, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. I think most of us here know this, what this is talking about. But that word signal in the New American Standard is a banner. That's so I've translated the old word banner. When you went off to war, you put your banner up and it said, see, we're, the, we're, we're still in this. And they're going to see this big banner fly, floating and they're going to go, that's where we go. We go there to them. They are the wins. They're the winners. They're the conquerors. They're the ones that God has actually accomplished something through. And they're going to see that. And he says, and it will be like a banner, a signal, and his resting place will be glorious. We're going to stop at that point with that here in chapter 11. Again, there's so much stuff. I mean, we could spend a, you could spend a lot of time. We could spend weeks and weeks going through all the prophecies uh, in detail. Turn with me to Isaiah 30, 32. Isaiah 32, and when we get to Isaiah 32, and there's a lot in here, but we're not going to go through all of those, but it says in verse 1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and then princes will rule justly. So Jesus Christ is the king, but there are princes beneath him that, that, uh, that reign beneath him. Did I? I was just wondering about this. This is actually, this is interesting. When I was going back, I was telling Peggy, I was reading back through all my verses last night, sitting in the living room, and then I actually kind of went back in the context, and I was looking at one of these things, and I, this, if you have an NIV, they've kind of taken a little bit of an interpretive way, but probably is what this is talking about. I want you to go down to verse 19 here, just to, we're going to work up to this a little bit. 
verse 15, it's talking about what's happening, how God's taking care of the people. And we've talked about the Holy Spirit's role before, but it says in verse 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered like a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will buy in the fertile field. It won't just be in the city. This is what he, we were just looking at the last verse when it's talking about the animal kingdoms changed. It says that the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the water covers the sea. It's going to be everywhere. It's not going to be just in little pockets. It's going to be everywhere. And then he goes on from there. It says, and the work of righteousness is going to be peace. And the service of righteousness quietness. And that word quietness is like quietness as opposed to war. And confidence forever. Something you had when you have uh, the Hebrew word batak, to trust in. You got confident trust rather than fear that everything's going to be turned over. And my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in a secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. And then now, I'm going to read the New American Standard, and it will hail when the forest comes down and the city will be utterly laid low. Or, as the NIV handles it, though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely. The point being, if you go back to verse 18, his people, God's people, live in a peaceful habitation even though this could have been the case, even though this might have been the situation. They actually are experiencing the peace that God planned. Anyway, just a little bit more on the nature of this and the role of the Holy Spirit in purifying all of these people and getting things ready. Okay, um, I want you to go to Isaiah 52. There's two things I want to point out in Isaiah 52 very quickly as we go through as he looks at this, and they kind of line up with things we've already seen. But Isaiah 52... Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 1, it says, Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no more come into you. We saw that briefly over in Revelation 21 when we were looking at those statements over there. But one of the things that's going to be so holy about that, just to kind of give us a point of why this is even an issue, this is what happens. When you have the Millennial Kingdom, when this begins, the only people that enter the Millennial Kingdom are believers, Jews or Gentiles alike. They're just believers on the earth. Not us. We're going to be with Christ on the New Jerusalem. And there's going to be resurrected Israel, that they're going to be resurrected, to be in that, in that, in that world too. So this is what's going on. You start with all believers. Those people that come out of the Tribulation alive, Gentiles and Jews alike, they're going to marry. They're going to bear children. We're going to look at that before we're done here today. And they're going to bear children. And as they go on living down here, their children are going to be just like your children, just like my children. They themselves still have to believe in God. They have to believe what God reveals for them. They have to come to believe in Jesus Christ. And some of them won't. We know that from other scriptures. You go to Revelation 20, you're going to have so many people that they're going to be able to come up. And, and he says at the end of Revelation 20, you couldn't count them. They're like the sand of the sea when they surround Jerusalem. But those people, as unbelievers, do not have access to the city. That's, I think, going to be one of the reasons that they rebel at the end of Revelation 20. Because they're not allowed to come to that city. They can come up to it, but they can't come into the city. They are not permitted to enter the city. No one. 
That is, what does he say there? Uncircumcised and unclean. None of them will be able to enter that city uh, at that time. One other thing that I think is important here in uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 52, if we look down in verses uh, 5 and 6, it says, Now therefore, what do, I, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and that word howl in the New American Standard is to taunt or to mock, and you might have that in uh, if you have a, a different translation. And my name is continually blasphemed all my day or all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here, I here I am. He says it has been that they blasphemed me all day long. But what's going to change is that they are no longer going to be blaspheming God. Blas. And to blaspheme God means to ridicule or even to make claims about God. To, to blaspheme God and say, God's okay with us acting like this. God's okay with us doing this. God's okay with that. And that always, nobody's going to do that. That's exactly the point that he's making here. Out there in that millennial kingdom, God's going to end the blasphemy of God. Nobody's going to mistake take God's name in a proper way. Nobody's going to uh, malign God's name. Nobody's going to take the name's Lord. Lord's name in vain, and nobody is going to attribute to God something that is not that is not true of Him. Um, I'm just I'm trying to see. We have another one here in Isaiah 60, which I'm going to skip over. Um, I, here's here's one that I in the study of this that I thought was uh, very interesting. This is on Isaiah 63. Isaiah chapter 63. By skipping over some of these, I'm probably skipping some favorite ones that you wanted to look at or something like that. But Isaiah chapter 63, and uh, let's go to verse 1. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom? Wait, just wait a second. I'm trying to make sure this is the one that I wanted here. This is not the one that I wanted. Just a second. Let me look back. I should have marked all the ones I wanted. Oh, it's Isaiah 56. This is the one that I wanted. I think this is really cool. This is really cool. Isaiah 56. It just shows you what a change there was from the way the law was given to Israel in the Old Testament versus what it's going to be out there in the future. And just to, 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 to kind of give context for this, I want you to go back up to verse 3. Isaiah 56 and verse 3. It says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Neither will let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. I don't have any progeny. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. Because we all understand a eunuch has no children. He's not able to produce children. And I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbaths and holds my covenants, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples." Point being, as I was just going to look at this, these people that didn't really have an inheritance in under the old system, 
they are going to in the millennial kingdom. They're actually going to have, God's granting them privilege. We just looked at the fact that the uncircumcised and the unclean, they can't enter the city, but guess what? The eunuchs and the foreigners, non-Israelis, they're going to be able to come and they're going to have access. They're even going to have, as he says, a memorial on the wall and they're going to have, even have more notoriety in that, in, that, in that memorial than those that have lots of sons and daughters. It's better than that, even. And uh, which is to me, I, in reading through these, I was just thinking that really cool. How what God does? I don't know. Can you say really cool? Well, I just did. It's really cool how God puts that together, um, and even promises something to those people. I got one last thing that I want to look at uh, here today, and it's in Isaiah 65. <clears throat> and in Isaiah 65. Um, uh, he's, he's talking about the nature of, the, of what's going to be happening with regard to all of these different people at that time. And uh, I want you to go down to uh, verse, let's go down to verse uh, 17. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. This isn't the only place that we have this told in Scripture. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, and that come to mind in the Hebrews, it's not going to rise up in the heart. What do you do with your heart? You make decisions. So he says the former things are not going to be rising in your heart so as to affect the way you think to make de or make decisions. Those former things, by the way, are, um, and Jim went over this with us several years ago, and if we went back through this, we could see so the former things are going to be the troubles. But I would also say not just the troubles, but even are there things, are there, there, there things that you like to do right now? They're not a wrong thing. They're just not like a God thing. Like, my wife and I like to get in the car and just go for road drives. I mean, we do that around here. We just take an afternoon and we just drive all up and down old back roads that we've never, you know, that we haven't ever seen. We've seen most of them now around here, so now we have to venture off a little bit. But we, is there anything wrong with that? No. Is it forbidden by God? No. But I don't think we're going to be going, oh, Peg, don't you wish we could be driving on the roads on the Royal Slope today? <laughs> in other words, the point he's looking at, he says, those kind of things are not going to be rising up in your heart. Those things. As Jim pointed out, you will remember things such as God redeemed us. He actually did a work of salvation. That's why we're here. But the other things that would distract us, he says, they don't rise up in the heart with regard to these people. So he says, um, verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing in her people. Now he's looking at the present. In other words, he says, out there in the future, I'm going to create new heavens and new earth, and you're not going to remember these former things. But he says, right now, you rejoice right now in this Jerusalem that I create. And that has to do with what he's doing, looking at this, this millennial kingdom. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Because remember, nothing unclean, uncircumcised, nothing evil gets to enter the gates of Jerusalem during that kingdom. No longer will there be an infant of just a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred and the sinner who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought to be accursed. Now, if you understand the last part of verse 20, that is telling you that in that millennial kingdom, there's still going to be death and dying, right? But that's not eternity. There are some that understand this, that because go, they go back to the statement in verse 17 about creating new heavens and earth, and they believe that in eternity, 
that there will still be death and dying. There's not death and dying out there. How do we know that? Turn with me in your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 21. We're just, and, and the passage in Isaiah doesn't disagree with this. It's just a matter of being able to see, I'm going to create this out here, but be glad in this that I'm creating now in what he's doing with Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom this time. So look in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the tent of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be dead, neither shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he's talking about, back there, if you went back to there, He's talking about these things that God creates, these new heavens and new earth. And he says that in these new heavens and new earth, God wipes away all tears from their eyes. It's one of the promises when we move on to eternity, death and dying and all the causes of death and dying, they're all gone. Those are some of the things I would say, going back to the passage in Isaiah, those are some of the things that are not going to be rising in the hearts of people where they're going to be going, oh, I mean, do you remember? do you remember all the suffering that you went through? Do you remember that long-term illness where you were sick for 10 years? Do you remember that? No, you're not going to be remembering those things. Oh, do you remember how you languished and your death was drawn out and it took, it took you two months to die? Not going to be remembering those things. And you know why that's important? Because every one of us are going to ha have those kind of stories where we have people that we care about that went through those kinds of things. Even if it's just sudden. Do you remember suddenly when, I mean, I've got a good friend that got a call. He and his wife got a call in the middle of the night that their daughter was killed in a car accident. You think that that's not the kind of thing that now almost 30 some years later that they, doesn't rise in their heart once in a while and affect the way they think about things? I'm sure it does. Out there in eternity, those things aren't going to be rising in their hearts and they're not going to be sitting, oh, do you remember that night? Do you remember that phone call? And so he says back here in Isaiah chapter 65, he says, yeah, there are going to be people in the kingdom that are going to die, but they're going to, but when they die, they're going to live to be 100 years old. If they don't make it to 100, that's going to be unusual. Today, if a person makes it to 100, I don't even know who celebrates them now. It used to be when I was, you know, when we were younger, it was Willard Scott on the Today Show. Today, so-and-so turns 100 years old. But, because it, it is rare. It is rare. But then... That's not going to be rare in the millennial kingdom for a person to make it to 100. And they will build houses and inhabit them, and they will plant vineyards and eat the fruit. And they shall build in another inhabit. And they shall not build in another inhabit. They shall not plant in another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. And I think most of us can appreciate that. That aside from people coming in through, aside of forest fire burning out trees or people coming in cutting down trees, well, most trees, they last a long time. I mean, there's trees out there in the Midwest out there where Peg and I grew up. You guys get it. The mountains have them like this. But we had people out there where the pioneers back in the early 1800s planted trees, and some of those stands of trees are still standing and still growing. 
He says, as the life of a tree, so be the life of my people. This is the millennial kingdom. Verse 24, and it will come, come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the servant's food. They shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. As he looks at this millennial kingdom, mostly this is the millennial kingdom. We had a brief statement, verse 17, talking about new heavens and new earth. But Isaiah doesn't really develop the whole new heavens and new earth in this context. He doesn't really tell us anything about it. Just as even the book of Revelation only has, I think, seven verses that talk about the new, the new heavens and the new earth. The rest of the book of, of chapter Revelation 21 and 22 talk about the millennial kingdom. It's a different, it's a different setting. All of this to say, I, I hope you didn't find this to be tedious today going through these things. I hope it's something where you're reminded that this is our God that has these plans. And we rushed through this stuff. I mean, I, we're, I mean I'm sprinting, in my opinion, through a lot of stuff. And that means we're skipping over a lot of stuff that you'd like to stop and sit on and look at. Because all those details about these prophecies remind us that God has made promises to his people Israel, and he will make good on those promises. And when he prophesies, and there's one other detail on these prophecies in Isaiah, these prophecies are designed to encourage the people that were reading them in their day. This is what God's going to do in the future. Now, how should I be thinking about life and living right now? I mean, you and I have the promise that the Lord could come back for us at any moment in the rapture. We have the promise that we will one day sit with Christ in his throne and reign. Should those promises affect the way we think and approach life right now? Yes, they should. Because we should be able to say, there's no reason for me to give in and sell out and whatever other things we might say to the stuff that's going on down here. Because I have these better things coming in the future. And can I handle some hardship and difficulties now, remembering that I have better things coming in the future? And that was the call of, of Isaiah the prophet, remember, prophesying almost 50 years long to the, to the lifetime of these four uh, kings of Judah and reminding Israel again and again, God's got plans for you guys. God's got plans for you guys. God has plans for you guys. So cut it out. Knock it off. Quit doing these things. Turn. Come to God. Call on him while you may. These are the things that Isaiah is calling these people to do. And that was the purpose of these prophecies to make them think beyond their immediate surroundings and their immediate circumstances and look to something better coming in the future. Father, we're thankful for the prophet Isaiah, uh, not a man that was writing to us and not writing about our life and our existence or our salvation, but he is writing about you and your plans and those plans are things that we will even share a part in to some degree. There are certain things that we will participate in. But Lord, uh, if your truthfulness is in any way uh, maligned by the way we look at life, by the way we look at things, even by the way we treat these prophecies that you made to your people Israel, uh, Lord, we're not reading your word right. We need to respect your truthfulness and that these prophecies will be as you have written them, as you had Israel speak or had Isaiah speak them. And that encourages us that the things you promised to us, you also will do. 
So we're thankful for this time together, thankful for the attention of these people, and ask that as uh, we have taken this time to kind of survey through Isaiah very quickly over the last few weeks here, that maybe we would be encouraged to pick our own Bibles up and read Isaiah and even have a hopefully a better perspective on the things that you have done and encouraged with what you will do with us again. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.